Pete Yost here. Jake and Steve and I just want to thank Huber Engineered Woods for their sponsorship of our Unbuild It podcast. It's easy to speak well of a company when they use building science and systems thinking to develop working systems for high-performance buildings. That certainly goes for the ZIP system. The ZIP system integrates all four control layers, water, air, vapor, and thermal. Its components, polymer-bonded coating on OSB, acrylic PSA tape, stretch sill pan flashing, and liquid flash sealant are all top-of-the-line building products, compatible and designed for durability. Throw in the zip R panels for continuous exterior insulation, and that's all four control layers. Seem a bit too good to be true? Then consider their system 30-year warranty, their complete online set of info resources, and their top-notch tech hotline. Be the best with the best. Welcome back to the Unbuild It podcast. I'm Jake Bruton, and today joining me are my good friends Peter Yost and some guy that we met in a parking lot, Steve Basic. Hi, guys. Uh, and <laughs> hey, Jake. <laughs> and today's conversation is a continuation of last week's conversation. Last week's conversation was an introduction to control layers, where we introduced you to the idea of water control, air control, vapor control, and thermal. And uh, then after talking about that, we talked about water. And uh, we talked about things like the red line test. We talked about things like understanding that we want the water to go down, out, and away. And we really talked at length about the idea of continuity. And so I think that that's a great place to start our air barrier conversation because the same way that we want our water barrier to be continuous, I think that we would like our air barrier to be continuous. And Jake, the, before we go any further, I got to say that each of our wives would just be tickled pink to know that the three of us are talking about control and layers. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there are very many, there are uh, many different layers of control in my house. And I think most of go. them are my perceived ability of control at home. The, the only uh, thing I know about control is forfeit of. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I have a conversation on site with my building professionals, either in-house carpenters, subcontractors, whatever they may be, uh, or for architects that for that matter, uh, the word continuous, 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 like that's the only word I use is continuous. Does this connect to that? I even had that conversation today with a framer uh, that we'll get into that, I'm sure, today as well. Uh, but I wanted to start by saying continuous and then seeing what your your reactions were to that word. Yeah, I mean, I'll start out with that ever-loving myth that we always hear, right? Um, you don't want to build too tight. You want your houses to breathe. Well, that's a load of crap, basically, in my mind. Also, I, I'd pair that myth with I've been doing it this way for 40 years. Yeah, and but but the the problem with the I paired that or pairing that with that I've been doing this for forty years is that while you, you the the logic of hey I'm letting my house breathe for the last forty years but the construction assemblies have differed so you're you're building a tighter building and I mean in my personal view I can't build it tight enough if I was able to build and design design and build a hot air balloon. I would be ecstatic because remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about control layers. I, I need ultimate control to get ultimate performance. 
So any control I forfeit in view of air leakage, then I forfeit some level of performance. So, you know, when you're talking high performance, control layers, air leakage, it's all simply based on continuity. And the, the continuity is such that it needs to be, you know, everything I, at 100%. And so. so the easiest way for us to say uh, lack of control when it comes to control layers and, and specifically air control, that's we can equate that to leaving a window open, right? If we're, if we're letting the outdoor air get inside the house, then it's no different than leaving a window open. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And it's just a question of how big the window is. The, the other thing, too, is that, um, you know, every time you got air moving, you got moisture moving with it. And so we're, you know, the thing that Joe Stieberg and Betsy Pettit drove home over and over again for us was that um, when you got uh, leaking air, you got moisture moving with it, you have a double penalty. It's the BTUs that you're losing, either losing in the winter or gaining in the summer from air leakage, but then also the moisture that's moving with it. And you know, it wasn't until the 1980s that we figured out that about 25 to 40 percent of the total uh, uh, BTUs that are moving through a building are from air leakage. So it's not just a little thing. It's a big thing. Yeah. And so so that continuity certainly plays a role because I always explain it when I'm, I'm lecturing that the moisture can jump on the air train. Right. And, you know, what I learned from, from Joe at Building Science was that, you know, vapor diffusion really isn't a scary thing. It's when it hits a cold surface, it becomes a scary thing. But you really need to worry about the air train, not vapor diffusion, because you can move a lot more moisture, and I'm sure you can speak to that, Peter, through, you know, a, a leaky hole in the wall than I can through the materials of the wall. Yeah, for sure. And that's a big leap for a lot of builder building professionals is moving the uh, uh, moving moving that topic from vapor diffusion and how fascinated we get with vapor retarders compared to uh, a focus on air leakage. Um, so I, and, I think what I'm hearing from you guys, uh, and I think I'm going to expand upon it, but I think what I'm hearing is the idea of air control also helps to control other layers as well. So if I have no air moving through my wall, I have a lot less vapor moving through my wall. Is that what you're saying, Peter? Yeah, because if it's air, it's moisture moving as a vapor. And what we worry about is that vapor turning into a liquid. And that's going to happen if we have, you know, warm, moist air moving into the building in the summer or warm, moist air moving out of the building during the and winter. And we all know what happens when vapor turns into a liquid. It becomes a number one problem right? It becomes a water management problem. Instead at of then. a number three problem. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's a good way to put it too. And so what about my insulation package, Peter? Is my insulation package perform better if I don't have air moving through the wall? <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you've got an air permeable insulation uh, and air is moving through it, well, the vapor's tagging along, as Steve said, in, in that train. Um, the other thing that's that links here is um, Steve and I spend an awful lot of time making a distinction between a, a quote unquote air barrier and a quote unquote vapor barrier. And 
it's these are terms that get used in properly on drawings um, and the fact that air moves in very different ways than vapor does and so um, it's not just how much water can move with them it's that the way that we manage an air leak is quite different than the way that we manage vapor moving through a building yeah, and, and I mean, the other thing, too, that I find a lot out there is the minute you start talking about air barrier, somebody wants to talk immediately about some kind of membrane or, you know, wrap on a house that they don't understand that, okay, the the window and the glass in the window is an air barrier. The sealant around the window is the air barrier. Um, if you're using zip wall, zip wall on the wall can be your air barrier. The foundation wall is your air barrier, even though some people say concrete can't. To those that say concrete can't be an air barrier, I tell them, <laughs> okay, let's go on the foundation wall. Put your lips up against the wall and blow hard. I'll go blow on the other side it. and see. See if I can feel it? <laughs> yeah, see if I can feel it, right? You know. Have you so, had any takers on that experiment um, yet? No, but I have had arguments with you know, energy raiders and stuff saying, oh, you're not allowed to use the slab as an air barrier. And I said, okay, go down there and blow through it then. Let me see, let me see you do that. I mean, make a liar out of me. But I've, I've tested houses, you know, with, with it and to extreme numbers of using the slab as an air, air barrier. I, I got to tell you though, once my wife came down to the basement and I was standing there with a uh, HEPA vacuum cleaner Wait, sm- Steve, or Peter, this is being recorded. Do you want to tell this story? <laughs> I do. I actually do. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's not even PG-13. But she comes down the stairs, and I've got this you know, shop vac and a smokestick on opposite sides of a concrete block, you know, a CMU. And, uh, I'm, and, and I was, somebody told me, hey, you know, uh, while concrete is an air barrier, uh, concrete blocks are not. And, and so I'm trying to pull the smoke through the block with the vacuum cleaner. And my wife just walks by shaking her head like, hey, you don't have a girlfriend and you're not going to bars. So knock yourself out. <laughs> I can I can put up with this level of weird crap going on in my basement. Exactly. <laughs> and indeed, I could pull I like a little it. bit of that smoke through the block. So, you know, that that air barrier tightness requirement is pretty darn tight. So are you saying that you actually did pull smoke through the block? Yeah, but there was enough smoke that I was inhaling that the results are a little dubious. <laughs> and so sidebar conversation then as to everything else that we're talking about. Uh, did you try it with one more than one type of CMU? Oh, yeah. So that's really good, Jake, because you are a wing nut, you know, at least in training, if not already certified. Um yeah, it, the, 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 the way that we make con- even concrete and concrete blocks varies from region to region across the country. It's one of the reasons that when we go to test moisture content of things like concrete blocks or concrete, we can't use an absolute, we can't use a, uh, an absolute scale to get the moisture content by weight. We have to use an abs- mm-hmm. uh, I'm sorry, we have to use a relative scale because we, the, the consistency, the matrix of the concrete or the cement block is not consistent enough to develop algorithms for it. Well, and that's probably true of just regular concrete. I know concrete strength plays a major role yeah. in moisture content of the concrete and its ability to, to move moisture through it, right? So Yeah. 
And you know, okay, so <laughs> go ahead, Pete. I was just going to say the the last thing is that um, it, it's really hard to explain to people that hey, we're going to build your house tight enough that then you have to have mechanical ventilation. So, you know, it the the application of building science, while the principles are relatively simple, it it does get more complicated if we're looking at not just how the building performs, but how it serves occupants. We should do a separate topic on that at some point. Yeah, and I mean, it goes back to my analogy of our, our own bodies, right? I mean, we have a dedicated input for air, and that air goes right to a filtration device. We don't arbitrarily let air get into our system. We bring it in where we need it so we can deal with it. And so the ability, you know, when I speak on this stuff, the ability to gain 100% control means that the air that I do let in the house, then I can treat it and control it, right? I can elevate or lower the temperature. I can elevate or lower the humidity. There's things I can do with that air when it comes in arbitrarily. If I open the window, I don't have that control anymore, right? So you want to close all the windows and you want to gain that control, hence control air, right? So I like talking to you two about air barriers, air control layers, and I like talking to my carpenters, my in-house guys. Uh, but there is, there, there's two things. I like talking about it from an aspect of I feel like I have a firm grasp on how our building assemblies operate for air barriers. Obviously, we're testing really successful projects for air leakage. But even this conversation and you pretending to say houses need to breathe or I've done it this way for 40 years just irritates the hell out of me where I just get instantly frustrated from we have one person in our market that owns a blower door that's not me so I deal with this conversation every time I'm at the lumberyard or every time somebody sees me with a piece of that silly green OSB that's twice as much as regular OSB sitting on my truck so it's it's a, uh, a pet peeve topic and a celebrated topic for me. So it's uh, stressful in some way, I guess is what I'm saying. And you know what I, I always find? It, this is kind of a, a little side story to that. But if you, you know, you just talked about I'm the only one with maybe one other guy that has a blower door in your market. So if you're in a lumber yard and the, there's the six builders that don't have a blower door, I sit there and say, what a great opportunity for you to set yourself apart and and make yourself you know seem like there's more value even if there is a more value you can make it give the appearance of more value because you got a cooler tool than the other guys do and you know how to use it and it's it's like hey i'm going to come in before i remodel your house let's do a blower door so when i'm done we can do another one and we can measure the difference i mean what a novel idea that is huh getting a little knowledge it's it's crazy and translating that into, you know, comfort and indoor air quality for the customer. I mean, I hear that all the time. Oh, yeah, Yost, you know, you work on high-performance buildings, but, yeah, they're more expensive. And, you know, that is such a red herring. I know that cost is important, but people buy expensive items based on way more than first cost. And if you tell somebody that you can give them higher, you know, greater thermal comfort, um, and better indoor air quality for their kids, uh, that's going to be a huge advantage because so yep. often we do have problems with thermal comfort and indoor air quality in buildings that aren't airtight. And you I know, would Peter? say that that's the biggest hurdle for 
selling the high performance aspects of our our company is getting people to understand the benefit yeah and it, it goes back i mean nathan nathan had one of the best analogies there you know talking nathan about who? risk nathan yost peter's brother when we worked <laughs> with him at building science and, and nathan would always talk about how close do you want to build to the edge of the cliff right and you could have 10 builders that you know one has really good knowledge and the other nine have mediocre knowledge and they're going to roll the dice in the hope that what they build will make it. And out of those nine, probably seven will make it. And it won't be a problem. And they'll continue business as usual and say it. And say, hey, it works for me. You don't need to do all that crazy stuff. But then there are those two that are going to get caught. And they're going to fall off the cliff or it's going to collapse underneath them. And that's the end of them. Right, because they didn't take the time to understand it, and they didn't take the time to understand what risk was involved and how to mitigate that risk. You know, it's, uh, hey, so we we talked about how important controlling bulk water is, and then we moved on to air, and then the third one is going to be vapor management. And I just want to start the transition from air to vapor to say that. The amount of moisture you can move through air leakage is about 100 times greater than you generally get with vapor. Now, there are some exceptions. You know, if you're doing indoor swimming pools or if you're doing uh, an attached greenhouse of 1,000 plants, yeah, that's a, that's a level of vapor pressure you're going to have to deal with. But that's a different most, model. Yeah, for most buildings, the number of times they're going to get into serious trouble from just vapor by diffusion alone is, you know— one in a thousand compared to the buildings that get into trouble because of air leakage. Right. And I, and I would bet that, you know, those, those couple builders that do get into trouble, they don't know that they're in trouble because the wall is, you know, there's stuff growing on the inside of the wall and they just simply don't know about it because nobody's gone in there to check and they haven't had a major failure at the moment, but that doesn't mean it was the right way to do it. Um, so then to continue the conversation into the vapor realm, I think it's best to start the conversation with a question. Cool. Do I need a vapor barrier? I'll go so, first. Um, go ahead. So do, I, I think this is the best example of where there's a difference between barrier and control because um, vapor is more about managing than it is you know, sort of continuous uh, linking of various parts of the of the of the dedicated layer. And to me, the most fascinating thing is once a building gets wet. The only way to dry it is by diffusion. So for me, that vapor control layer is way more about can I get the building to dry if it gets wet rather than is the building going to get wet by vapor? How do I stop it? Yeah, and and you know what ha the the whole reason we developed vapor uh, retarders was because of wood frame buildings getting wet in the '40s in a northern climate, and from that we spread the 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 logic of a vapor retarder through all kinds of buildings, not just wood framed, and through all kinds of climates, not and, just and cold with climates. that, Peter. Let me let me ask you a question to get your opinion because I, I think I've asked this before, but I'm going to ask it for the benefit of our listeners here. In 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 those 40s or in those years, 50s, when people built houses, we know that a lot of people when used Peter was poly, building houses, right? 
you know, <laughs> we, we know people that use poly and stuff on the walls. My argument and contention is that the poly really acted as a very bad air barrier and not necessarily a vapor barrier. So while moisture can't pass through it, the the saving grace of having that piece of poly there was that a lot of air wasn't moving through it. So there wasn't a lot of moisture on that air train moving through it. So it wasn't that the poly was a really great vapor barrier, but it was more of it kind of saved your butt by being a really poor air barrier. And maybe it was doing double duty. Yeah, I mean, that's how I have always kind of looked at the vapor barrier systems. Yeah, well, I I think it's a little trickier than that in that um, air leakage is about highways. It's about two holes connected by a driving force, whereas vapor pressure is a field effect that's exerting equal pressure across the whole wall. And this is why when when Joe would give the example, like if I have a piece of plastic and I poke enough holes in it that represents 10% void, do I have a 90% effective vapor retarder? And the answer is yes, because the, the vapor pressure is pushing equally across the whole field and the molecules can't talk to each other and say, hey, there's a hole over here, let's all run through it. They're all pushing the exact same force wherever they're located. That's not true for, for air leakage. Air leakage is that there's a highway and they do say to each other, hey, look, there's a highway here, let's run through it. Well, so, it's kind of like if you look at, if you think of, the those two as loads to a building then you're saying vapor is a uniformed load and air leakage is really a point load oh that's i've never heard it expressed that way but that's exactly the an analogy yeah you're Um, welcome i told him that three hours ago oh cool (laughs) would you admitted steve that that was actually hell no he didn't say that (laughs) do you know what a uniform load is jake Now that I've heard you reiterate it to Pete, I, I think no. I a uniform a load is when you've got a really heavy coat as part of your uniform. There you go. Right, yeah. or a backpack. Yeah. Sorry, Pete, that wasn't funny. Um, and and think about it. That vapor retarder. That's is, what makes it funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that 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 vapor retarder layer is just about managing winter movement of warm moist air into the assembly. The rest of the time, it's blocking drying to the interior. Um, what if I hey, live just, in Houston? Just as a side note, you know, just so you guys know, one, one of my goals in, in conversation with Peter is to see if I can get him to stall and totally forget what he's talking about. <laughs> I, I consider that a personal success when I can do that. So It's not an easy task either. No, not yeah. at all. Thanks so much for sharing, Steve. Now I can't remember what I was going to say. So my question to you, Peter, is you said uh, you were talking about uh, cold climate and it keeping things from the, that warm, moist air from getting into the wall. Well, what if I live in Houston? Isn't there a vapor need for vapor uh, to slow down vapor drive in Houston or Miami? Yeah, so that's a great question because you could end up with vapor pressure from the outside to the inside of the building in Miami that's actually a greater vapor pressure than what we get in a cold climate. Uh, from during the winter. Um, what we really want to avoid is that first condensing surface, right? Because what we worry about is when it changes from a vapor to a liquid. So a perfect example of that is, you know, if you switch to vinyl wallpaper in Houston and in the summer you've got warm, moist air, you know, pushing from the outside of the 
outside environment in, if that if that first condensing surface of the backside of the uh, gypsum board um, is really, really cold because of the air conditioning inside the building and there's a vinyl wallpaper on it, now we've got exactly what happens in the winter um, for first condensing surface happening in the summer in, in warm, hot, warm, moist climates. You know, every time somebody says vinyl wallpaper, I think of, you know, me, Neil Moyer, and Joe down in Florida in a in a hotel that someone just slept in the room. We're doing a building investigation. We peel off the vinyl wallpaper, and it is literally a mold mosaic on the wall. It was yeah. absolutely frightening that somebody was sleeping in that room the night before. Crazy. Yeah, and, and part of that is that, you know, if you were to pick a medium to grow mold, uh, a gypsum core with a thin layer of paper on it, that's a pretty good choice for setting yeah, up. It's, it's like a chia pet. With a little bit it's of a, edible. Yeah, it's exactly. a home-building chia pet, Peter. You spray it with water and just kind of watch it grow. Yeah. Give yeah. it a little heat. But okay, the other so thing about... The, well, the other thing about vapor, too, to be concerned about is when you get into specialty areas, right, in climates, too. Like I've done natatoriums and personal indoor pool buildings or wine cellars in the basement that are under heavy controlled environments that have a relatively high humidity that you don't want it to get into the rest of the house. So it's not necessarily even about the the building in general it could be a compartment within the house that can't really communicate with the rest of the house for that reason of a high vapor pressure and what's interesting about that steve is you and i have both worked on a couple of projects and and shared about you know natatoriums indoor swimming pools and you know the two times i've been involved in recently that the key thing was if you're not going to do a perfect air control layer don't even worry about you know, what sort of vapor retarder you have to have because that will overwhelm your system. You know, yes, I want you to worry about the vapor retarder and the and whether it's class one, two, or three. But before you even go there, you better make sure you have a really, really good con air control layer or it'll all be for naught. When we talk about uh, the indoor swimming pool and the, the greenhouse. When I was at uh, summer camp two years ago, somebody at summer camp, uh, building science summer camp was telling me that the bulk of their business was consulting on grow rooms in Colorado for marijuana dispensaries because they were dealing with enormous spaces that they have to control everything inside of, including humidity. And then they have to have durable assemblies that'll still last. So it was a really interesting conversation where it's just like, Oh yeah, it's that's a wine cellar basically. You're you're controlling everything inside the room, or it's a swimming pool. It's just different levels of different things. And whenever I hear uh, swimming pool, I immediately go to that conversation and think, oh yeah, a bunch of people growing marijuana in Colorado too. And and getting back to your original question, Jacob, do do we need vapor barriers, and what is our opinion? Um, now that we got through Peter's opinion, I'll just share mine. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> you know, the first question I always ask when people say, you know, what do I need a vapor barrier? I said, okay, well, where's the moisture coming from, right? Because to have a problem, I need a source to create the problem. And I tell people, me personally, if I build a relatively airtight structure, then the vapor problem really doesn't become a problem 
as long as I pay attention to the con the surface of, of that first condensing surface, the temperature of it, right? If I can lock in those two things, control the airstream and control the first condensing surface, then I don't feel like there's this major problem. You know, okay, so controlling that condensing surface then brings us into our discussion about thermal, correct? Oh, so nice if we're one, able to, yeah, thank you. Uh, we're able to uh, talk about putting a sweater on the outside of the house then. So I, I think, Peter, give us the quick building science 101 on insulation. Talk to me, buddy. Talk to well, me, Goose. Yeah, so uh, step number one, we put uh, insulation in cavities because they're there. So that's the first kind of thing we have to deal with, which is, uh, yes, we can talk about exterior continuous insulation and its benefits, but we, we mainly put the bulk of our R value into framing cavities in walls and roofs because we have that space. We've sort of already paid for it, you know, and now we want to use it. It is not the best place to introduce um, insulation. In fact, you know, it's pretty easy to look up Joe Stebrick's perfect wall. And the perfect wall is um, one in which we make sure that we have uh, all of the insulation on the outside of the cavity. So the cavity is seeing conditions pretty similar to what we're seeing inside the building. Um, the, the, the framed wall likes to see the same conditions we do. And the way to make sure that happens is not to put any insulation in it at all. That's not very realistic. We need to use that space. So now what we're going to do is put enough insulation on the outside of the cavity, on, on the outside of the building, so that we warm the cavity enough to avoid condensation in that cavity. And that's going to vary by climate. It's also pretty cold climate centric, right? Which is a, is a pretty significant bias in our industry in that a lot of the building science is a bit more tuned or defaults to cold climates than it does uh, uh, warm climates or cooling climates. Because in reality, we almost all live in houses that we're paying to condition on the inside. Because we're all trying to control that temperature inside. And one of the things to do that is the thermal barrier. The, why would we, uh, you know... That the temperature difference between 120 degrees outside in West Texas and 68 degrees inside is not that different from 68 down to zero. It's still just trying to keep inside air inside and conditioned and keep the outside air outside. Yeah, I, I dumb it down even further. When people say, you know, do I need insulation or do I need a lot of insulation here? My first my answer to that is actually a question. Do you buy energy to condition your house? Because if you buy energy to condition your house, then the thermal barrier or thermal control layer is developed there to take that energy that you're purchasing and hold on to it as long as you possibly can. And that's whether it's cooling energy or heating energy. It's, it's energy. You've paid to convert that energy somehow some way in your boiler or air conditioner or heat pump whatever it is refrigerator you it. refrigerator so why not hold on to it as long as you possibly can right 
and the you know the the other big benefit of having the insulation on the outside of the building as opposed to in the cavity is we can make it continuous right so that that means that, that we again. get we get a more even bang for the buck for the per thickness of the insulation on the outside of the building and, and peter i'm going to piggyback your story because as a young architect in, in at building science corporation i get to sit down one day at lunch with one of the greatest minds of building science one of joe's mentors and you know as a young architect i didn't know the answers but i had a feeling on some of the questions right and i asked them i said hey what's the best wall that i can build like what's what give me give me some secrets here give me the secret sauce to building a wall system he simply said put as much insulation on the outside of the wall as you can afford and you'll never go wrong yeah which comes back to that condensing surface again yeah and and not only that but think about what when you put that rigid layer of foam on the outside of the wall and i'm going to use you know the r panel because i've used it as a um zip on a lot of projects zip r panel and you know you can get in three six r9 r12 we commonly use the six and r9 panel a lot but if if i take a two by four wall then and i put an r15 bat in it well the cavity is r15 but at the stud it's you know r5 r5 you know something like that and then the windows are r3 so when when you go through this the whole wall r value you end up with a number and and these are kind of fresh in my mind because listen to jails or pick up the jlc here next month i wrote an article on this very subject and um but the minute i put rigid insulation on the outside to the tune of r6 while in the cavity at r15 that goes to r21 the real important thing is at the stud that was R5 now goes to R11. So I've doubled the thermal control at the opaque surface in a wall system, which if you're a good framer practicing advanced framing, that maybe accounts for about 15% of the wall. If you're a framer where, you know, you can't put enough wood in the wall, that might account for 25% of the wall. But uh, it, it's a huge help because it's, it's literally putting that blanket or sweater or whatever analogy on the outside. And, you know, I tell those in, in the cold climates or any climate, it, as a matter of fact, if you don't think rigid insulation in a continuous fashion and continuity is that important, then the next time you lay down on your couch to watch a movie on a Friday night and take your wife's blanket, cut it into 16-inch strips, and then space them over her with a couple, you know, two-inch spaces in between those strips. And <laughs> see how long uh, your comfort lasts. The analogy works, but don't go cutting up a blanket and blame Steve, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, the other thing that I, and I'm going to steal a little bit of Steve's thunder here is, because um, I love this part of the way that you think about thermal insulation, Steve, is that... Um, the con- the other control layers, water, air, vapor, um, we want those continuous and we want them as continuous as we possibly can. With a thermal layer, it- it's proportional to what the delta T or the temperature difference is or the amount of energy you want to save. So it's the only one, in my opinion, where you pick a level that you can afford, the but there's no like scale. absolute minimum or maximum. It's a it's a it's a matter of choice based upon how much you're paying for energy, 
and uh, how much money you can spend on it. But I, but I think that that's a choice that transcends, you know, laterally through every design performance choice of a house, right? A house that I build in San Diego, which is virtually, I can open the door, go outside, inside, outside, inside, and it's the same environment 90% of the year. That's different than building a house in Minneapolis, because mm-hmm. when I walk outside in February, it's not the same that it is inside. So there are proportional decisions that have to be made there. And, you know, we'll get into this. I think, you know, maybe one of these times a, a good podcast would be pr- proportional decision making. Because it doesn't make sense to, yeah, like you said, to put R9 on a wall, on a 2 by 8 wall, fill up the cavity, and then put an R3 window in the wall. Right. It, it just it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense to necessarily put an R9 two by eight wall in San Diego. So. Well, and actually that that conversation about windows and glazing is part of the insulation conversation as well. You know, when we think about it, we have a tendency to talk about our value of the fluffy stuff that we're putting in the wall and forget that we also need to be talking about the U factor or the the our value of the glass, the glazing, or the unit as a whole as well. Well, strike one up for you, Jake, because I, I think it's it's not even just windows. I think when you look at every material, every material almost plays a role in what what part of the water management system is my sheathing? What part or role does it play in my air leakage continuity? What role does my sheathing play in my vapor transmission? And more... Uh, more importantly, as Peter pointed out, my wall's ability to dry. I, I totally agree with that. That's that's probably one of the most important parts of vapor diffusion and, and vapor management is I really don't care so much how much vapor gets in my wall. It's how much vapor can I get out of my wall if I have a problem. And, and the same with thermal. It's, you know, yeah, a window is a piece of insulation. It's a rather poor one but the wood frame is a piece of insulation the glass panes or igu is a insulation and it's a vapor retarder and it's an air barrier and oh by the way it's a water management layer so it's it's how we put all of this stuff together and i mean someone should really come out with a podcast and and find a way to break down all these components (laughs) in a real intelligent way and speak to an extremely intelligent industry and provide some direction in this arena. I mean, I, I don't know what you guys think, but I, I think that would be a really great idea. The master unbuilder has spoken. <laughs> hey, I like I, the idea of a continuing game where we name a building component and say, is it an air barrier? Is it a water barrier? I got a quick wrap up for you here too. Does it, is it more important in, in what plane you locate your water control layer or that it's continuous? So for me personally, when I design the, the less coat, the, the least amount of coastlining I can do with the water management layer, the more confident I'm in it with it. Meaning. So the, the most confident water control layer is right. If I put a piece of zip sheathing on the wall, tape it, I'm pretty confident in that. If I poke a hole in the window and I keep the window in the same plane as the zip sheathing, I'm pretty confident in that. Move that window in six inches, 
now I have this lateral displacement where I introduce horizontal or very minimally sloped surfaces where little bitty roofs I have problems right but but you'd rather have it continuous than be forced into locating that water management layer in one one particular plane or the other you, yes okay and that, what about the air control air is it more important that it's continuous or more important that you locate it on the outside of the wall, the inside of the I'm wall? I'm going to make an argument between. that it continuous is the only thing that's going to matter for me for air barrier. Obviously, the least amount of moving things around and connecting dissimilar materials is better, but continuous is the only thing that matters because if we're not continuous, then it doesn't matter that we did it short yeah. or only Perfect. on the outside. That's exactly yeah, what I'm, I was I'm driving. I'm totally on yeah. board with that, and I, I would preach that to my death that I – I don't care what material you use and where it's located. You need to understand the intent of what you're doing. And and we get those, Peter, we get those questions all the time. Well, what, yeah. where's the best place to put the air barrier on the outside or the inside? And I know there's there's a lot of people that, you know, they'll, they'll put in tallow on the inside of the wall and then a service cavity and all this stuff. And, and yeah, that, that works. And it works really well if you understand the intent of what you're doing. But I think you can come up with other solutions that you can understand the intent of what you're doing that work just as well. Might be less complicated, too. Yeah. Excelente. And, okay, and, so I know, think that's a... Well, I, I was just going to say, the other part, too, is I, that I think is really important. Control layers don't have a financial boundary, Right. So what I'm trying to say is, if you're if you're in the business of say, um, buying lots and do afford doing affordable housing in Houston, control layers still matter just as much as if you're doing a three million dollar house outside of Boston, right? Now the materials might be slightly different, the windows might be slightly different, but the concepts are the same. Like you you can't you can't value engineer out control layers or value engineer out continuity because you're just going to put yourself at a higher risk and and here's the kicker when when you start doing that with lesser materials then i'm challenging the house in two ways right i'm putting a lesser value product in and i'm installing it in a lesser value installation so it's kind of a you know i'm, I'm, I'm shooting myself in the foot twice there by doing that excellent and, and not only that steve but um you know most of the work that all three of us do when we talk about high performance it's dealing with these four control layers like it's not an option for us it's something that's part of making a durable healthy building for um, any occupant wealthy or uh, affordable yeah yeah like, like we say peter it's not rocket science it's building science right it's right right I'm having a, I'm building a 1,200 square foot house that's going to be a rental for the clients, and all of these things are at the forefront of our discussion before we move on to countertops. Yeah, excellent. So, okay, that's a good point for us to wrap it. This was uh, season one, episode four of the Unbuild It podcast. We thank you for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Jake Bruton, joined by Steve Basic and Peter Yost. Say goodbye, guys. Goodbye, guys. Goodbye, guys. Goodbye, guys.